All right, my friends, welcome back to the Freestyle Way podcast. My name is Carl Powley, your host, and I'm sitting here with Rylan Hormel. How are you, dude? I'm doing great. Really excited about this episode. Yes. Chantel Martin, I've been a fan for a long time, and the fact that I got to meet her and sit down with her and talk to her, and she was so generous with her time, was just awesome. Awesome. And uh, it was a bummer you weren't there. I'm bummed I missed it. <laughs> listening to it, she sounds fucking dope. Um, and as an artist, um, this was just a really impactful episode. I think a lot of people, artists or not, are going to have a lot of really uh, positive, actionable takeaways from this. Yeah, for sure. No, she was great and super insightful. And she's a pro. She's done this for a long time. She knows what she's talking about. She is super simple, clear, compelling in, in the way that she communicates. And it was cool to meet her and to realize that what you see is what you get. That's how it sounded for sure. Yeah, that's a that's a big deal because I was a little nervous. I was like, oh man, please, please, please cross my fingers, please. And then she, she yeah, she definitely delivered and uh, you could just tell like super chill, Super thoughtful, uh, very intentional in the words that she chooses and how she chooses them. Uh, I mean, it's it's her craft, and she she really lives it, which is awesome. And she's a very good educator. Yes, that was really powerful for for me just to have all of this new insight of the business side of art, and then also from the um, the, the the way we support artists as individuals. Yeah, that's one of my favorite parts of the whole podcast is uh, just this conversation around how how do we uh, pursue creativity in a way that is realistic and practical, and at the same time allows us to straddle uh, between this practical reality that we live in and. Uh, this uh, world of fiction or imagination. It's, it's really cool. And she, she's able to really uh, deliver on that uh, through her work. So if you don't follow uh, Chantel Martin, you should definitely go check her out on Instagram and you should definitely listen to this conversation that we're going to present to you right now. So without uh, further ado, here's Chantel Martin on the Freestyle Way podcast. Why don't we just go back to uh, the beginning to when you were a kid? I know you've, you've talked about this many times before, how you, you almost used to get in trouble for uh, always drawing. Yeah. Um, it, what was that experience like now looking back? It's funny, when I look back, I look back when I see other children. So if I go and speak at a school or if I'm a parent is showing me their child's work, which lots of parents do now, I think about how lucky these children are that they're mostly their work is encouraged and their parents are so proud of them to be drawing and being creative. And, and I wish that for my younger self in so many ways. I think also I'm conflicted with the sense of responsibility. When I look back, I feel like I was denied something, but also I look back and I see that people were also being responsible because it's not, like anyone from my background or that environment was 
becoming an artist or that was even a thing so why would you encourage your child to do something that had no future or to do something that had no end and it was actually seen as a distraction from them focusing and doing the things that actually mattered to that got them somewhere so as as time goes on I I see both sides of it now Mm. Yeah, there, there's a lot that comes up for me as you're saying this. Uh, one is a, a personal story. My, my grandparents used to have this beautiful wallpaper in their house, and they had some flowers. So I decided I would fill it in with a little... <laughs> <laughs> Seems appropriate. Um, I don't remember my grandparents getting mad or anything, but you know what they did? They, they put a little mini frame around that drawing uh, that I did. So I, I guess they were supportive, which, which was a little bit different than what you experienced. Uh, was was it like that? You would see a table, maybe this table right here. Uh, does this uh, make you feel compelled to draw well, on it? At a very nice white table, and you know, everything is a canvas in my mind. So everything eventually I want to draw on or have drawn on at some point in school or at home. It was a bit more compulsive, you know, something I always had a pen in my hand or always wanted to draw. And that ended up manifesting in the back of my school books or on my walls at home. And and those are the things I would get in trouble for because it's defacing, it's it's not encouraged, it's, you know, misbehaving. And it's seen as a negative or it was seen as a negative. And, And so... I ended up hiding it and I would draw under my bed or behind the curtain or I'd draw in the back of my school books, but, you know, I made sure I was being discreet about it. Mm -hmm. Do you remember when when you had that moment where you realized, okay, in some ways I'm getting in trouble for uh, what I love to do? Do you remember making that shift mentally and emotionally to saying, no, this is this is what I do and I'm going to do it? Uh. That makes the assumption that you know what it is. And I never knew what it is or it was. Um, you know, growing up, I wasn't exposed to artists or galleries or museums. So imagine you're a child. You don't know what an artist is. You don't know what museums are. You don't know what galleries are. You see people not finish school that are older than you and then they get a job working locally doing you know moving or the trash or you know in the supermarket that's what it is Mm -hmm. being an artist was never an option so it wasn't ever I was drawing and knew that that could become something one day because the artists that we did see in school were you know old dead white guys who were the artists and that was normal at the time you know if if you're an artist you're one of these old dead white guys because that's what art is and was to me as a child so it's very hard to imagine things at a point when you can't see it you know now it's probably easier to imagine because we have the thing called the internet and social media and you can see things and art that aren't necessarily in your reach Mm -hmm. I really appreciate uh, you acknowledging that you you didn't know what it was or, or maybe you're even still discovering what it is uh, is, I still is, don't know what it is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> People are like, who are you? Yeah. Uh, what, what is it you do? Um, do you remember when you started being acknowledged as an artist? So it took a very long time. So I grew up in London, southeast London. I eventually went to art school. I finished art school. I moved to Japan. I become uh, an English teacher. 
Then I become a VJ, a visual jockey at night, doing visuals to DJs and dancers and musicians. Which I didn't even know that term existed until you oh, said it. Oh, there you go. So I was a VJ doing that in Japanese clubs and avant-garde spaces. And then slowly that started to turn into less of a nighttime activity and more of a daytime activity. And I would start to get jobs doing art and being more creative then I still never knew it was an option to be a career it's always about balance you know I what I've known is that I enjoy to do that thing Mm -hmm. that thing is writing that thing is drawing that thing is making that thing is creating I never knew that that could be a career but I knew it was something I wanted to do and it was about changing that balance from the things that I didn't want to do to the things that I did want to do and in Japan I started to do more of the things that I wanted to do which were in the form of artistic or creative or drawn endeavors and it then for me it was about well how do I do this more and that less I didn't know what the result or what the outcome would be, but it was more about how does this become more and how does this become less? Yeah, and I think a lot of people who listen to this podcast and even us in this room, I mean, when you went to art school, did you know that one day you were going to get paid (laughs) to be an artist? I went to Central St. Martins. It's a very fancy art school in London. You know, big reputation. Doesn't teach you anything. A lot of nepotism. All of those (laughs) things that you maybe some of us are unaware of. But I really wanted to study fine art, but I knew fine art in a way was for rich kids and nothing against rich kids. But, you know, you have more advantages of than others out there and we have to acknowledge that so what I did is I studied graphic design and with graphic design I knew that it was still in the sphere of being creative but I could perhaps rely on a job at the end of it you know it it seemed more practical yeah practicality is such a problem especially for artists Uh, but the way that you operate is also very functional like VJing, for example, mm. enhanced the experience that people had at the club and it required technology to do that, I imagine. Oh. VJing was interesting because I loved dancing. I still do. And in Japan, I'm teaching English in the daytime. I'm making okay money, but not enough to be going out clubbing every night, which <laughs> right, is what expensive. you want to do when you're <laughs> in your 20s. And so going out clubbing, I thought, well, you know, we're dropping things here, but... But going out clubbing, I thought about, well, how do I do this and not have to pay for this? Because I can't afford to do this, but I love being here and dancing and and meeting people and and enjoying life in this way. And I saw people VJing and doing these visuals. And and it was very kind of cliche in the way, the VJing at the time. So, you know, you have a couple of guys with a couple of laptops and a VJ mixer. And they're mixing clips from movies. And then there's a tunnel on the screen. And then there's a rabbit. And then there's clips from the sound of music or something. And you're like, this this doesn't mean anything to me. And I thought, how can I bring more meaning to these visuals that are background? How can I make these visuals foreground? And I thought, well, I draw. What if I become a VJ that draws? And it wasn't a thing that existed really at that time. And and so I became a live club VJ, a live club illustrator. 
and I would turn up to well before that I, I started doing it analog so I would draw with pen and paper uh, post-it notes and magnifying glasses under you know um, visual presenters or overhead yeah just like the OHPs. classic the yeah, things that you could exactly. fold over and they would project on the wall and so I'm jumping ahead a little bit but essentially, essentially that evolved into me doing it in big clubs where I would use my computer and drawing software and, and Wacom tablets and I became a live club illustrator and I would draw to DJs and dancers in these massive clubs on all these projector screens and monitors around these clubs and and you can imagine that you know the the DJs DJing and I'm drawing and the crowd would go woo and I would write woo and then I'd zoom in and zoom out and move around and you see your friend you write their name and suddenly the visuals are foreground they're not background anymore they're relevant it's an experience we're connecting we're connecting through the visuals in the space. And so there was something really present and something really engaging and something really connecting about that that I really loved. And so fast forward, I became a VJ where I'd go to clubs, I'd draw for a couple of hours, and then I'd go and dance for a few hours and I'd get into the club free, I'd get drink tickets, and my friends were getting free because I had a guest list and I would draw and I loved that and then I would dance. And it was like the perfect kind of job at, at that point. That is so cool. I, I mean, that must have been such a great experience uh, in your 20s. It, it was, and it, I think it was one of those first paths where I'm creative problem solving i got a problem. I need to get in the clubs. I like dancing. I don't know how to do it. And, and so now I, I see this manifest in different ways in my career where there is a system that's kind of against you or a system that doesn't let you in, but you find a creative solution of playing a role in it that perhaps didn't exist before. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I don't want to get ahead of myself either because I see a million things that, that we could talk about. But in this case... Uh, your art at a practical level got you into the clubs. Mm-hmm. If, if we were to do a fast forward to the present day where you do a lot of big collaborations, Puma, Samsung, you've done big things. What's the practical uh, application of your art there for these big brands? Yeah. Well, the practical application between the brands, the inc- institutions, academia, is that I'm not in one particular box and I believe that I have a foundation as a philosophy, as a style, as a medium, and that foundation I can take to any industry. And that's what it is for me now. I think we, especially moving to New York like 10 years ago, it was like, if you're an artist, you shouldn't work with brands, you shouldn't be doing this, you shouldn't be collaborating with these sorts of people. It's um, not respectful, it degrades the work and it devalues it. And what I've shown in many ways through the example of the collaboration that I've done over the years is that you can do these things to a high standard, to really high quality, with impact, with value, and play a role, regardless of the medium, regardless of the industry. Mm-hmm. And what, what's your role? My role is to be a very nice human being in this world, in these many worlds, um, I remember when I first moved to New York, uh, I, I met a friend, or she became a friend, and, and she was telling me how horrible this artist was to, to work with that she was working with at the time, and he made her cry and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, well, why are you working with him? Because he's an important artist. And internally, I had this thought that, oh, I want to be an important artist, but I want to be nice doing it 
as an example in a way that we don't have to work with people who are not nice and to use the excuse that they're important should not be an excuse that we use in the future so I want to be an important artist and I'm going to work really hard to do that and I'm going to show that you can be nice on the way mm-hmm I, I mean, I love that. And I think that's something that I, I try to do every day. And I, I catch myself uh, being judgmental or uh, making poor decisions or, you know, treating people. Even when I'm trying to be uh, nice, sometimes uh, I'm not as nice as I yeah. could be. So it's, 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 it's a constant work in progress, I feel like. Um, what was your, wh- why did you leave uh, Japan and uh, to come to New York? Was that to pursue the career yeah. of so being an artist? One thing leads to another, leads to another, leads to another. And I wish things were that intentional or focused in a sense. But So I'd lived at that point in Japan for about four and a half years. And I knew it wouldn't be forever. I didn't know how long it would be. And I remember waking up one day and feeling ready to leave. And simultaneously at that time, I'd met a couple of people from New York and Boston And they said, well, why don't you just come and visit us? You know, it's just, it's not that far away. Save up, get a plane ticket, come out. And so in 2008, I took my first trip and I went to New York and I went to Boston. And of course, you go to New York for the first time. You say, I love this place. It's incredible. And it was such a change from being in Japan for so long. So I moved to Japan in 2003 before smartphones, before Instagram before Facebook and so it was one of those times or one of those very last times where you can go across the the planet and be totally isolated in a very highly developed culture and industry and so I was very alone in Japan and you know the culture is very different and and going to New York and it being so different from Tokyo it was so refreshing to me and the fact that you could talk to strangers and they would talk to you and it was so random and, and exciting. And so after that first trip in 2008, I was like, I have to move here. This place is amazing. And so I, I got an immigration lawyer. I spent all the last of my savings on that. And then in early 2009, moved to New York. Wow. Yeah, and that's an interesting time because that's when uh, everything, we were in basically crisis or coming out of this. It was the worst time to move to. It was crazy. So the last decade has been a big one for you. It's been big, but I think every decade has been. There's been fundamental things and and growth. Uh, I think the last 10 years more professionally have have been telling. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and what, what are you telling that's a good question and you know the higher narrative is just freedom of expression it's Mm -hmm. it's asking yourself who are you and that same question you're asking I've come to learn that on my travels and being in all these amazing spaces is that we don't know who we are we know what we do we know the roles we play we know where we're from but we don't essentially have the words to articulate who we are at the core as human beings. And, and, and I feel that that's where we are misguided in many ways. Our focus is misguided. 
Because if we only focus on the superficial things, if we only focus on what we have and where we're from and what we do, and we don't focus on that language or the vocabulary or the emotional vocabulary of exploring who we are at the core of people, then how will we really solve the world's problems? Because we're only going out, we're not going in. And when you go in, that's how you inspire yourself and that's how you become kinder and that's how you become more focused and that's how you set your priorities. But we are not doing that. Mm -hmm. And so what it is now is this philosophy of of finding self it's this philosophy of freedom of expression it's this philosophy of asking questions but all as an example of me being myself in many ways or being on this journey and using that as an initial mirror or a reflection for other people mm-hmm. yeah that's that's massive and and what comes up for me as you're saying you're talking about going inward and asking yourself who are you because we're not who we think we are and we're constantly uh, reminded of this if we're willing to be aware. And when you go inward, I think for a lot of people it can be very scary. And I, I remember I, I grew up as a very scared kid. Everything freaked me out. Loud noises freaked me out. Uh, crowds freaked me out. But through gymnastics and through sport, there was something about crossing this threshold of walking into the gym, getting on to an apparatus or uh, entering competition where I transcended who I thought I was and I became more of who I am. And I, I feel like through your art and your work, every time you draw a line, uh, you're, you're kind of stepping into that. Um, is that true? And if it is true, uh, what does that feel like? What does it look like to you? Uh, how do you express that yeah. to people? It looks like you. It feels like you. It sounds like you. It moves like you. It is you. And I'm so fortunate that I started my career in the way that I did in Japan because I feel like it gave me a huge advantage or a head start in knowing self. And what I mean by that is, and I talk about this sometimes where I was in a position where I'm drawing live to music. I'm drawing live to bands, to DJs, to dancers, musicians. And those live drawings were projected on these giant screens. And so you imagine if there's a giant screen and that screen is in f- behind the, the band that is playing, they're playing. If I'm not drawing, nothing's happening on that screen. So it put me in a position where I just have to draw. I don't have any time to think. I don't have any time to plan. I don't have any time to hesitate. I don't have any time to be insecure. I only have time to be myself and let the pen go where it wants to. What I'm essentially doing in that moment is extracting myself. I'm not thinking, I'm not planning, I'm not hesitating. I don't have time to be anyone else but myself. I don't have time to overthink what I'm doing. I only have time to do. And so at the end of that, session or at the end of that event or show I look at what I've drawn and then now you imagine that you repeat that and you repeat that and you repeat that and you repeat that and you repeat that you start to see you you start to see the recurring themes or recurring shapes or recurring patterns or recurring words or recurring types of line and that's your style that's your fingerprint that's your identity and it takes artists such a long time to find their self because we're always looking out in the world. We're trying to be inspired by other people. Even at art school, they tell you to go look at other artists. They don't tell you to go in and extract because it's already there. And so that's how I got to find myself and see myself and know myself through hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours, and hours of just drawing in clubs and not thinking about them. 
Yeah, I, th- I think that's amazing. Have you had any experiences where you've uh, drawn live? Because I know you do a lot of sessions where you draw live, you speak, you even play a little music. Uh, have you had any any sessions where when, once you've been done, it's been uh, like clearly transformative for you, where you, you reflected back and felt like, oh man, today was a big shift. Yes and no. Imagine it's all just one massive tale versus these events. It, it, it's all one body of work and it's all one story. The, I like talking about the art as I create it live on stage because I can demonstrate that I'm not thinking about what I'm doing because I'm talking about what I'm doing and I'm explaining to you what I'm doing as I do it. But also at the same time, you now are a part of the process. And it's quite similar in a way with drawing in the clubs where people are dancing and they're being, you know, kind of enveloped or surrounded by all these drawings. But now they're surrounded by the voice in a way of me explaining the drawings, but then they get to see it happen. And so now they're a part of the process and therefore they're a part of the work itself. Right. And in terms of uh, your visual, it's very simple. Lines words why black and white yeah and just a few splashes of color here and there i think the textiles have have color but yeah. um, it's interesting i look back even at the work you know the oldest sketchbooks that i have which are probably 20 plus years old and it's a similar it's the same thing and they're, they're black and white and there's lines and there's words and i've gone through phases of it being more detailed or less detailed or um, you know more realistic or less realistic but characteristically wise it's always been black and white stuff that i've been drawn to and i think that's because it's been the most accessible it's been the most um consistent uh, there's a sense that you can't hide with colour you can hide you can pull a lot of pretty colours on the page and it's deceiving in some ways and and with black and white you have to be confident in that line otherwise it shows so I love that you can't hide in it and I also love that people can discover things by themselves so we are animals we are these creatures that have uh, an innate way of seeing colour we have a hierarchy in the way that we see colour so we're going to see certain colours like reds and yellows first because those are instinctually about danger so we when we look at a very colorful painting there's already a hierarchy and an order of how we will see that whereas when you look at a very large drawing or a smaller drawing that's all black and white there's no hierarchy we are all just going to be simply drawn to where we are drawn and i love that idea that you're not telling anyone where to go that they'll go there by themselves and then they also have the opportunity to rediscover because there isn't that hierarchy it's just only them on their own terms with the work yeah that's beautiful and I, I really like that that you you're not trying to tell people where to go you're maybe just presenting something mm-hmm. that allows them to choose their own adventure and it seems like black and white is very timeless it's timeless and it's calming as well so you imagine there's a whole room that is black and white drawing and you know there's some people that do black and white and it's very intense and kind of uh, condensed Mm -hmm. and that can still that can feel quite intense in a way I've estimated that my work is about 10 to 11 percent coverage which means it's 80 percent space it's sometimes sometimes 90 percent space so essentially you're looking at 90 percent space and there's something relaxing about that. There's something calming about that. Yeah, very much so. I, I, I can definitely see that. It's interesting. Um, kind of shifting gears. It, it, 
when you're talking, what I get is I get this like sense of freedom. Like, wow, you're, you're out there, you're doing your thing, you do it how you want to do it, when you want to do it. On the other side, are there, are there moments where you feel pressure? There's not pressure, there's limitations. There's, there's barriers, there's paths that aren't perhaps for you and then that's when it comes back to just being creative and not being scared. You know, you, if you're scared, you can't create new things or new systems and you can't go against the fold. And so my career has always been about doing what people tell me I can't do and doing what I want to do, but doing what I love to do. And somehow that has able to filter out into a space where then I'm either hired to do that or shown to do that or um, honoured to do that in, in many different ways. But it's just sometimes there's hurdles which are institutional they're social they're financial and so you know the goal is freedom it's it's freedom to do and create and in any way and in any shape in any form that you want to mm-hmm. yeah I, th- I think that's awesome so have you arrived at, at, at a stage in your career now where you're you're kind of fully the boss like you're in control is that what's happening? I think I've always been the boss, but um, but in control of what? You know, I'm in control of my studio and I'm in control of my art, but, you know, in control of what? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I, and I ask you this because a lot of people think that if, if we find control, everything's going to be okay. If we find the right ladder to climb, everything's going to be okay. If I associate with the right brands or the right people, everything's going to be okay. I, I'm going to be in control and, uh, yeah, the, the future is, is bright. Um, but there's so much unknown. And I guess in your representation of how you see the world through your art, that space is the unknown. And it seems like you're very comfortable with that. I've learned that I'm very comfortable with being scared and I'm very comfortable with not knowing and I'm very comfortable with being challenged. And that's how I've in many ways been able to do the projects that I'm doing and it's it's never you do these things and then it's great you've done it here's an award and we'll pat you on the back and life's over you always have to continue to struggle and continue to challenge yourself and continue to push yourself and continue to progress so of course these on the outside these projects or these endeavors get bigger and bolder and perhaps more impactful because you're on that path it mm-hmm. wouldn't make sense to walk backwards in a way all right and are there, are there projects that you're more excited about than others? Yeah, you know, it's, um, I, I like the scary projects where it's something I've not done before. You know, if I've done it before, then I, sometimes I feel like, what's the point? Because you have to ask yourself when you're doing a new project, like, what is the point? Is it having an impact? Is it, does it morally and ethically align with what I'm doing? Is it something I've never done before? You know, is it a new demographic? You know, and... If it ticks those boxes and it, and it makes you feel like you're being challenged and great, like you're in the right place. But if it's like going to work for a nine to five and doing the same thing over and over and over again, which is fine if that's what you do. But sometimes as artists, that's not what we do. And, and that's why we are doing the absurd careers that we have chosen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and talking about careers. So you make money as an artist. So I would like to talk a little bit about money. Um, you probably get commissioned to do a lot of stuff. Uh, how do you choose? 
yeah. what to do when well so first you know money and art is a is a big topic mm-hmm. and you know it, it's something i've come to learn a lot about and there are a lot of artists that don't like to talk about money because that's how they've been taught or trained or the system has led them to believe and i'm not saying that there's anything wrong with that but I feel like in any business you have to know all the aspects of the work that you're creating or the career that you're involved in. And so it seems strange that you make art which is then sold for money but you don't want anything to do with money. Mm-hmm. Um, or you make art and then if you work commercially with a brand then you think that that devalues your work even though the brand will pay you 100%. Whereas if you give your work to a gallery which is okay, they'll sell it and give you 50% but that's better it's all commerce you know and i love to just call these things out for what they they are and and i think it's our responsibility as artists to educate ourselves and educate ourselves in all aspects of the business i'm not saying that you have to be a lawyer i'm not saying you have to be a cpa but you should be aware and familiar with your taxes and with your legal obligations and with the contracts that you sign and the consignments that you sign it's very naive in a sense of and, and especially when I hear people say, oh, well, you know, artists shouldn't have anything to do with money because it takes away from their creativity. And that's fine if you come from a very privileged background and you have people watching your back and you have your own family lawyers and your own family CPAs doing your taxes. If not, then you do need to know everything about your business and, and the aspects of it. And money is a huge role in that. And so I feel like there are so many opportunities as artists to make money in different areas and different aspects and and the way that you do that or the way that you say yes or no to that is very simple if it feels like a yes you say yes if it feels like a no you say no and if you're saying yes then make sure you've educated yourself in all the points that you're agreeing to Mm -hmm. yeah i I, I hear you 100%. And I, I think I had a little bit of trouble with this when I uh, started getting into you know book deals and stuff like this. You start becoming a little overwhelmed. Yeah. And you think you have to say yes right away when you're dealing with a big company or a brand or there's a lot of zeros behind uh, in, yeah. in that check or whatever. Uh, people can get immediately a little nervous and paralyzed. But I think you're, you're totally right. It, there's, there's a difference... Uh, between selling out and actually providing a value or a service or doing something that is 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 going to move people yeah. in a positive way and to uh, be open to receive something in return, I think that's yeah. really valuable. I mean, when you were VJing in, in Japan, you got to get in for free. Yeah. Do you remember when you started getting paid for being an artist? Um, or what that progression well, looked yeah, like? Yeah, I guess, you know, in, in Japan, I, I would get paid for VJ and then there were some smaller projects that I did there. I, I did a couple of CD covers at the time, which, you know, that was a big thing. Um, and I actually, I, I did a couple of like animations for like pro, J-pop promo videos and stuff like that. So, so that was kind of like the earlier stuff that I was doing. And then in New York... Funny enough, a couple of my gigs were doing live visuals at MoMA at their friends and family event or doing live visuals on Gossip Girl uh, TV show um, or doing live visuals at Digital Graffiti, which is 
at the time was like one of the world's biggest outdoor projection festivals in this oh, wow. very small beach town called Alice Beach. This like beautiful town that was based on the architecture of Bermuda. Um, and so a lot of the earlier work being pa- paid as an artist was actually the live visuals because I was coming over from Japan. Uh, the artwork actually... I have only very recently started to sell original art pieces or artworks. Um, I've I've done it here and there in the past, but not a lot because when I moved from Japan, I thought I would then work with galleries since I moved to New York because that's what you do as an artist. But then I realized galleries didn't want to work with me because if you haven't sold, then they won't sell you. If you're not in the gallery system, they won't bring you in. And I came from the club scene of Japan. So my earliest, you know, for the first seven years of perhaps of my career in New York, I made income from lecturing, teaching, collaborations, installations, experiences. And through all of those things, if I created any art, it would just go to my archive. It would go to my storage or I'd destroy it. And so now it's only recently now that I don't have to make money through selling art that I can do it, but do it on my own terms. And so now I do do art commissions and private commissions, and I do work with galleries that are willing to be creative and not do this 50-50 thing, which I know galleries have overheads and that they have to pay for many things, but essentially that needle needs to shift a little bit, even just as a gesture to show that the power should be a little bit more on the artist's side. Because... We talk about, you know, artists selling out, but essentially, why is it okay for curators and gallerists and art advisors and everyone between the artists and the consumer to make money and to make a lot of money off the back of artists? But then if artists make money, then they're selling out, you know, and I think it just comes back to a little bit of re-education. Yes, you're selling out if you do something that's morally and ethically unaligned with who you are as an individual if you are just trying to make money to pay your rent to pay your taxes to pay your studio to pay your handling to pay your insurances to pay everything in between that's not selling out that is just a part of you having a job and being a business and and like any other person in any other industry yeah i mean it's it's such a massive topic so what can we do I would love to be an artist, but I'm not. What can we non-artists do to support the artists and help them have a bigger voice in terms of uh, how they are seen and positioned when it comes to uh, business? I I think as, you know, education on both sides. So to come back to us as artists, education on the artist side is just to educate ourselves with all the aspects of our business. So taxes, agreements, what red flags are, your rights, what you're giving away, what you're not giving away. On the consumer side, on the civilian side, it's about just knowing or just, um, you know, it's not a transparent industry. So just kind of knowing that when you do work with a gallery and when you do buy something from a gallery you give 50% to the gallery and 50% to the artist and if you're fine with that that's great you're supporting the gallery you're supporting the artist but know that you can also as an individual look for artists that you love on Instagram on your local high street in your local coffee shop if you see someone's work reach out maybe go do a studio visit maybe 
buy some of the work directly from the artists and 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 collecting artwork isn't spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on a painting it could be buying a pin or buying a t-shirt or buying a tote bag or, yeah, or, buy, a print. or buying a print or buying a smaller drawing so collecting with your heart and your mind so doing it by yourself not relying on not not collecting with your ears and what you hear um and then also just know where money goes like when you do pay for something just understand that okay i'm paying for this and i'm paying for this and this is what i'm supporting and this is where the money goes and if i'm not okay with that then let me go and buy directly from the artist and support them in that way yeah that makes sense to me yeah yeah i i would be happy to be able to support like that uh what came up for me as you were saying this was if if we were to rewind 10 years and let's say let's say you're climbing the gallery ladder okay yeah. getting into galleries if if someone uh who runs a gallery heard you say something like this would be like ah oh, maybe we shouldn't have Chantel because she's not supporting our gallery uh would 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 you be more um, reserved in how you would have but, expressed but, yourself but, back then, or no? No, not it's, at all. But why is a gallery there? Is it not there for the artists? Is it not there because all these gallery owners love art and want to support artists and want to make sure that they have long careers? The truth of the matter is that to galleries, we are more valuable when we are dead. Postmortem is usually the, the yes, way. You know, the work is more valuable sometimes when the artist is not present anymore. And as a for the for the gallery, we are their biggest expense. They have to give fifty percent of their sales to this individual, to this artist. So it's if when we are out of the picture, it's better for them. Yeah. And so it's not sometimes in a lot of galleries interests and 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 I, I say this very lightly, but um, or cautiously, it's not in their interest to support us as living artists, you know. And and I've seen so many examples of an artist that's just passed away, and then now the gallery works so hard to sell their work because they get such a better, higher profit now because now they're dealing with a foundation, or they're dealing with dealing with like loved ones, or they're dealing with someone that they don't have to give fifty percent. Now they can give twenty percent. Now they can give fifteen percent. Now they can give ten percent. Um, which is sad, but but that's the truth of the matter, and that's the industry that we're in. We're not in a regulated, transparent industry. Mm-hmm. Which I guess now this this kind of segues nicely into uh, working direct to consumer, which y- you have your online shop, yeah. and uh, people can purchase stuff there, of course, and support you. How has social media uh, helped you uh, get the word out and and develop a business for yourself? Yeah. You know, I think social media is great. I feel like, you know, we all know the good and the bad things about it. As an artist, it means that people are now exposed to your work that weren't before, or or they're not necessarily in New York, or they're not necessarily in San Francisco, and now they can see your work, and they can follow your journey, and you can get to know them in, in some respects. So going back to me as a child not knowing what existed out there in the world now people do and so in many ways as as big as a bad rep as sometimes as social media gets it is a window into these future potential careers and opportunities where you are able to see and follow along on ice career so for me personally it's great because i have a nice fan base of people that have been with me for now many years on these platforms that have been able to see me grow from afar um and that's that's really precious and really valuable in one way. Mm-hmm. And do you feel comfortable uh, selling? Yeah, in in what regards? Like yeah, when you pricing yourself. 
Yeah, you know, I think pricing yourself or on many aspects of your work or as your art, it's it's practice and it takes time to know your value. And sometimes, especially with younger artists now, they want to come in and just sell like at an obscene amount of money. And I think if they got paid that obscene amount of money right away, they would do themselves a disjustice in being on that journey or that evolution of gaining value and respect and understanding for themselves as well as on the outside world. So I think, you know, pricing yourself and knowing your value is a journey and and it should be a journey that is on a, is it an incline? It, it, It should be growing over time and therefore it makes sense and you're learning from it and you're, you uh, gain experience from it. So there is, I feel sometimes the danger of, of, of creative people to be right at the top right away because now where's the journey? Where's the growth? Where's the understanding of what value is? And, and so it should be steady and smooth, but, you know, gradual as well. Yeah. So, so... Is is a starving artist a real thing? Of course, I've been there. You know, I, I the, my first few, quite a few years in New York, I was sleeping on couches and, you know, I'd walk 20, 30 blocks because that was cheaper than the Metro card. And I would, you know, I remember you get invited out for dinners and you turn up right at the end. So you only have to buy a drink and, or just drink water. And so, you know, the, the, it's not, a term for nothing there are tons and tons of starving artists out there i think a different term that doesn't go away you know you're starving and then if you have some success then you're not starving now you can eat but a struggling artist is something that doesn't go away i feel like as artists we are always struggling my struggle has changed as artist struggles change and my struggle has changed from where do i eat from where do i sleep to how do I pay for storage and studio and staff and art handling and insurance? And how do I pay from all these things when now that I'm a successful artist and now everyone wants my work for free for auctions and galas and charities and, and no one wants to pay for it because now I'm successful. But what being successful actually means is that my overhead has gone up drastically and my income perhaps has mellowed out a little bit because now no one wants to pay for what I do because I'm successful. And what so an you, interesting so contrast So you struggle there. in new ways, you know, and so it's, it's interesting. That is very interesting. And, and where does technology fall within all of this? Because you're definitely uh, an advocate for technology. Where does it fall yeah. in for you? So I've always been involved in technology in many different aspects from working with technology in the clubs in Japan with regards to different VJ platforms and mixers to then coming to New York and and quite early on teaching at ITP which is like the information telecommunications department of like NYU where they do a lot of coding and programming and Arduinos and and then I ended up at MIT where I was a visiting scholar for a couple of years in in the media lab working along computer scientist and is that where you met Casey Neistat 
No, I've known Casey for years. Um, I knew him from years before I ended up at MIT, but we ended up in the same lab there. Interesting. And what were you working on there at MIT? So we were in a lab called um, Social Computing, which is a lab that builds social systems. So from example, anything that is a system out in the world that affects people socially, from Montessori schools to uh, parks that are along the roadside to maps things like that so so that was really fun but you know technology plays a different role now where technology is more about the art inventory system that i use i use a system called art logic where i'm able to input the thousands of drawings that i have and and log their location and their size and their condition and things like that um so technology plays a role now but perhaps in a different role and i i still sometimes do the visuals I have a like a museum installation now at the Denver Art Museum where I have a video piece there and I just did all the visuals uh, visuals in the Oculus in uh, New York and so technology played a role there or I should say digital work in a way played a role there and um, in February there's um, there's a I guess a program called Midnight Moment I don't know if you've heard of that but I haven't in Times Square the Times Square coalition give the all the screens in Times Square to different artists each month at midnight and so I'll do that in February next year so February 2020 you can go to Times Square at midnight and you'll see a video piece of mine play on all of the screens there so that's going to be quite that's fun that's really cool yeah. that's really cool uh it- is there is there one installation or one project that you worked on that when you saw it you were like whoa this is this is the most impressive just visually for you? Well, even I think this year has been an incredible year because I started the year with a huge collaboration with the New York City Ballet. Yeah, I saw that one was crazy. And so you imagine walking up to the Lincoln Center and seeing your handwriting kind of fifty feet high outside the Lincoln Center, and then walking inside to the home of the New York City Ballet and being immersed in this huge promenade which is all of your art and so that was an incredible experience uh and then actually to open up the ballets on stage was in, was incredible so so that was how i started the year and then i finished the year with a collaboration with the governor's island the trust of governor's island where i took over an an ex-chapel it'd been decommissioned 20 25 years ago and I turned it into a space for contemplation and poetry and invited the Poetry Society to come in and do readings every month. And But it's a really beautiful place. You walk in, you take your shoes off, and then there's this drawing on the floor which is in the form of a path that you walk. And the space itself is called the May Room. So there's all these phrases on the wall that are fragmented. So it looks like they're falling or rising but they say, may you be kind, may you sleep soundly at night, may we save trees, may we, may we, may we, may we, may you, may you, may you, may you. And it's a very calm space, but also a very thoughtful space. And so that's been a very impressive thing. And then also, like I just mentioned previously, the Oculus is my train station. That's the train I take to get home to Jersey City and so to walk through there and walk past that 200 foot screen or however long it is and see my work on there was quite incredible so I've managed to work with very different canvases in a way this year that secretly or like just inside it's been weird to be like oh my god that's my work that's amazing like 
look where it is and um you know you still feel like a big kid inside when you see some of this stuff actually executed yeah it must be surreal because uh you, you you've always been you mm-hmm. and the kid that used to scribble all of a sudden has their scribbles all over the world yeah and it just shows you can take something very simple like drawing and if it's you and you follow that path and you're true to it, you know, it, it can become a tool that becomes so much more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I really enjoy watching people succeed. There's something about it when, you know, just watching you speak about it, you kind of light up. And I'm like, wow, mm-hmm. I love that. I love seeing people feel proud of their work and, uh, and the things that they do. So that's, that's really, really cool. Um, How's your support system? Do you have a good support system? You feel like you have a good group of friends and people around you. You're, you're about to meet with a mentor here. Yeah. So it's it's interesting. I, I've uh, I've this year something that I learn after doing these incredible big projects is asking for help is a strength, not a weakness. Which someone told me very recently. So my support group has been, you know, almost non-existent, and. This year, I had the realization that, oh, wait, like, especially when you've been helping and mentoring other artists, as much as I can, you know, I I started Saturday Artist Showcase where I show an artist work on my Instagram on Saturday, or I help artists read their agreements and contracts, or I help kind of point them in the right directions and connect them with other brands or institutions. And so on the sidelines, I've been rooting for other artists and supporting them and mentoring them. And it came down to the question of like, wait, I've not had someone do that for myself. And I've not had someone really do it for myself because I felt like I've had to do it by myself, you know. And it comes back from just that realization as a kid where if no one cares for you, you have to care for yourself. And if no one's dreaming big for you, you have to do it for yourself. And if no one's working hard for you, you have to do it yourself. And you do everything by yourself. And and you do feel that if you ask someone for something, it is a weakness and, and you feel like you're burdening them. And so this year has been a big year for me where I've been learning that it's okay to ask for help and it's a strength to ask for help. And as a part of that, I've actually reached out to a few people and, and who have offered to help and I followed up. And so in a way now I have a couple of monthly mentors and there's something new I'm trying out where we meet in person or we speak on the phone and I have these people now that can ask me questions and I think that's the most important thing is to have people ask you questions because those questions are what helps you guide guides you it drives you it pushes you Um, and so now it's my chance or my time to ask for help and see that as a strength and ask for the aid of mentors and then in the future when someone asks me who are my mentors I will have a very clear uh, list yeah that's awesome that's awesome yeah I think asking for help is a difficult thing so it's kind of nice to have been it's difficult it depends where you're from and how you're raised yeah some people feel like everyone deserves them everything and they're okay with asking for everything and anything and a lot of us or some of us feel like we deserve nothing and that we have to work so hard for everything and then when we get it we shouldn't deserve it you mm-hmm. know yeah for me i mean the, the i've also been kind of on this same path of learning to ask for help which is very difficult and i i grew up where i had everything everything was accessible so i almost felt guilty 
to ask anymore. You've done enough. I don't want to burden anyone. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to go out and do this on my own. But sometimes you get to points in your life where you have to, you have to ask yeah. for for help, and it's very difficult. Especially because you've you probably the same as me. You go out there and you're happy to help everyone else, just not yourself in that way. Yeah, I've definitely fallen trap for for not helping myself which is uh, yeah it, it becomes a problem well i'm glad you're at that point and it, it seems like you're you're kind of uh entering this new stage of of your life and your career it's also it comes down to what your goals are and what the future looks like yeah you what know, are your goals uh, there's a good question you know if you asked me a few years ago my goals would be everything i'm doing now you killed it um, you're done but then now <laughs> it's like well how do you dream or think bigger and you get very used to thinking with limitations and you get very used to thinking with barriers. And so it's hard to think without limitations. And that's where someone like myself needs help because you're used to thinking with these limitations and that takes you so far. But then you need someone to kind of give you that leg up that's like, well, this is what the world looks like when you don't have any barriers and any limitations and you can dream sky's the limit or space is the limit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, if we if we were to go back to this white table that we're sitting at right now, and we thought of it as a canvas, the edges of the table uh, are kind of like the limitations in our mind. Mm. But using this table as a canvas and knowing that the limitations of the canvas is the table is taking the limits away, maybe seeing the impact that your art may have. Is that another way of thinking about limits? Yeah, so uh, limits could be like, okay, well, this table actually doesn't exist or this table is in 50 other countries on five other planets and this table is in the form of education and in philosophy and in, in... Um, neuroscience and in any other thing that you can think about and this table is in the form of coffee shops or barber shops or museums or this you know knowing that this table is malleable and can take any form versus it being this like solid fixed one location thing Mm -hmm. so if you're learning to remove the limits and you're setting out to do the next thing, whatever that may be, which may be an annoying question to be asked. Hey, what's yeah. next? Chantel, just tell me what's next. What, what, what is one of the aspirations that you may have right now that's percolating? Yeah. Uh, well, you know, now I'm working a little bit backwards, I guess, in the space that I'm in. So, you know, I, I would like to have my art in certain public collections, you know, or, you know, museums and things like that. And, it's in some collections but I'd like it to be more collections because then you have that legacy in that sense and the work is preserved and um, plays a role in in these institutions Um, but moving forward you know perhaps I'd like to make my own ballet or perhaps I like to have my own coffee shops or perhaps I like to um, start my own kind of educational component or you know and on a smaller scale like sure like a fashion line or pop up in some TV cameos or, you know, have my own stationery or, or kind of product line. And, um, you know, so it just depends on kind of what, what sphere or scale it's at. But That's cool. At the end of the day, just bigger, better, bolder, more impact with quality to a super high standard. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I'm with you on that. And I, I believe that um, our body of work is like the vehicle through which we get to uh, deliver the message. And what is your message beyond asking yourself 
who you are or who we are yeah and that's the journey as an artist you know it is discovering what that essential message is and and sometimes we don't know until we look back through a whole career or the body of the work of an artist and and if i look back at this point through the body of work it just comes back to what i said before it's about freedom of expression it is about self it is about asking questions it is about having no fear in, and and challenging yourself and and being transparent as well mm-hmm. being honest yeah being honest and it's hard because sometimes we're not even honest with ourselves i love drawing with an audience because that's what keeps me honest in so many levels if i'm drawing and you're watching me it comes back to that idea of how i started my career in japan I don't have that time to be anyone else but myself because there's people watching me so I just have to draw and that keeps me honest and as a byproduct it shares the process with the audience. Mm-hmm. And when people reach out to you what is what is a common question people ask you? I don't know if there's m- many questions I get just most people just reach out and say I love the work or it's impacted me or you know they're very thankful or grateful for how it's affected them and especially this notion of just asking who you are and how we find our way in life people are very thankful for that question or that reflection yeah and I ask because I mean I, I'm a I'm a fan and I love what you do and I think it's awesome I think sometimes you don't even have to say anything. You just have to do what you do and you're already delivering on that, on that message. So this Um, isn't, yeah. So you're a fan from the outside, mm -hmm. I guess, before today, maybe knew some of me, but not much of me. So what is my work to you as, as a fan kind of? Yeah, to me. Out there in the world. Yeah, yeah. that's a great question. Let, Let me think about this a little bit because there's, there's a lot of layers. I think the number one is, is just your presence you have amazing presence and, and I've, I've met people before that I look up to and as soon as I saw you outside and I was like, oh yeah, she's cool. <laughs> I, you know, I, I like who she is and what she embodies already. But your art is really almost like this, it's like a signature that when you see it, it's compelling because it looks aesthetically appealing so it immediately you gravitate towards it. But it's like what you said, you choose your own adventure. And one of my favorite uh, pieces that you've, you put out is th- the work that you did on, on the floor. I guess it was concrete and you did it with spray paint. Oh, yeah. I just thought it was fascinating to watch you move. And I think when one is in motion, which your art, like I'm looking at your hoodie right now, it's, it's in motion. Uh, you're in this constant state of adaptation. And knowing that this too shall pass, whether it's good or bad, for me, it's comforting and it allows me to uh, kind of satisfy that yearning that I have for I don't know what it is but for it hmm. uh, and that that's really what what you represent to me and I think when I've seen you coupled with technology or clothing or textiles it's almost like this sneaky way of incorporating uh, the question that is so scary for so many people of who, who are we here and, uh, you know, why should we even care uh, that I just find fascinating. You, 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 you kind of, you're a meme. You're replicating a, a culture, a culture that's willing to question. I see the questions almost like seeds in the work. So the seeds are planted and, and sometimes you see them, sometimes you don't. 
And if they're for you, you're watering them in some kind of way. You're, you're allowing them to grow within you, these phrases or these questions or these statements. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, is there anything you would like to uh, leave our listeners with? Anything you want people to know about you? I have a book coming out. You know, you were telling me about your book earlier, but this is uh, it's my first art book awesome. and it comes out in March, but you can pre-order it kind of anywhere at the moment. So... So that's exciting, and I'd love to do some kind of events and stuff around that. And um, But yeah, just, I guess, keep an eye out for what I'm up to next year. Uh, I'm also, next year, I'm going to start my Saturday artist showcase again. So if you know any good artists, uh, hardworking artists that you think should um, have more visibility, you know, like just DM me that, and I'd love to, you know, maybe share their work next year as well. Um, but yeah, you know, just... Keep being yourselves, finding your way in life and working hard and, and uh, support artists that you love and care about. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing. I really Thank appreciate you. you being here. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> All right, my friends. Welcome back. How about that? Chantel Martin. What do you think, Rye? Man, uh, so, so many little things. Uh, I mean, let's start with the, the lifestyle design perspective of her days in Japan being a VJ, which I, I didn't even know how to categorize that before. You didn't know what VJing was either. No. I mean, I've, I've seen it. Now, like, it, it, all these, like, things clicked in my head when, when she said that. But, um, you know, wh- what, what was your takeaway on, you know, how she created that, that lifestyle component for herself? Yeah, for me, that's the epitome of taking what you're passionate about, what you want your profession to look like, and then having a vocation, which is a contribution to, in her in her way, as a VJ, was to uh, allow for the music, the dance, the environment to uh, be experienced in a completely uh, different way, in a, almost in a heightened way. I think that's the essence of uh, designing a lifestyle that is conducive for your personal growth, which is her message for everyone. It's, she's asking, are you you? And do you know who you are? And uh, that that uh, I thought was really inspiring. And I, and I hope that people who listen to that can maybe reflect a little bit right now and think about the parts of their life that they are passionate about but maybe aren't fully aligned with their profession or their contribution. And if they can find alignment in those three aspects, in the passion, profession, and vocation, they will be expressing themselves in creative ways. And I think that's so cool. And the fact that she did that from the beginning uh, is just kind of a showcase that it's possible. And still is, right? So the the other piece that was big for me was just her um, growth process. She mentioned she's brought on mentors in her life. And um, so again, curious on what your your reaction was to hearing about how she's kind of staying um, humble with, with her success and, you know, keeping herself in the, in the shoes of, I mean, obviously she's a great teacher. 
Yeah, for we, sure. We heard it there, but she's also a student equally. Mm-hmm. I think we all go through stages, and, and I usually relate it to three different stages. You're in the child stage, you're in the teenage stage, or you're in the adulthood stage. If you're a child, you need to be handheld. When it came to her craft, her drawing, uh, she was maybe, you know, shown that you can draw on paper or on, <laughs> like she likes to draw on anything. Um, but that was probably at a very young age. Eventually she, in her artistic expression, even at the age of three, four, five, six, she was in the teenage phase where she would rebel and just kind of draw wherever she could. She, she wouldn't be in class, she would be drawing. And she would get in, as she was saying, into trouble. And you can relate to that. It's like, oh, wow, you went through the teenage phase within your craft at a very early age. And then in Japan, you became a professional and started getting paid. So you became an adult at a relatively young age in regards to your craft. So I find that to be very interesting. And to see her now as an adult, uh, not just in her craft, but in her life, and seeking out that uh, support from other adults is just this uh, iterative process that I think any creative or anyone who's trying to develop themselves or uh, trying to challenge what they believe to be true is, uh, she's doing it. So in terms of lifestyle design, that's, <laughs> she, she, she's the epitome of it. And, and like I said in a video the other day that I think you listened to, life is the game. She, she has her game. She's playing it. Style is the way. It's how are you, how are you playing your game? And design is uh, how you're constructing, strategizing, practicing, creating uh, different formats around playing the game. And she does this through her work. And if you, if you just go to her Instagram, which you can find at Chantel underscore Martin, uh, Ch- Chantel is with two L's, um, uh, you will see that she has a very clear signature, but that signature uh, expressed in uh, various forms, uh, develops this very diverse, colorful, even though she uses black and white, very, it's colorful in, in the substance um, that just kind of showcases the maturity of, of uh, her understanding of, of her creative process and that ongoing growth. It's cool. Yeah, and willing to do her own thing and step outside of the box. I mean, what you were just saying there reminded me, I'm looking at my coffee mug, right now and I have a sticker from my friend Ian Perator who's also a, a really amazing collage artist and it says break fake rules mm. oh yes yeah right and nice. like, as an artist like you've got to do that like you have to be willing I mean as anybody like if you want to like look at lifestyle design in a creative way you you have to be willing to break ru- rules around you or at least question them yeah and and then um, just you know, step outside of the box and challenge that kind of status quo. And uh, Chantel does a, a great job just reminding us um, that it, it's not only possible, but it, it's exciting. Yeah, I mean, I was grinning that. ear to ear after the conversation we had because I'm like, yes, this feels so good and so right. And the fact that you are modeling that behavior on a daily basis is something that is really empowering. So... Super cool. And a big piece of, you know, breaking rules and doing that is to do it with integrity. It's Mm -hmm. not to like blindly just go out and like fuck shit up. 
right? Like she talks a lot about her purpose as an artist and the message she's trying to convey to people. And um, you, you really feel the sense of integrity she has with her messaging. And that is built over time through practice and reflection and developing your, your kind of your code of ethics. Right. Um, and ultimately like when I hear that, I, I want to get behind it and I want to support it. Um, and those are the types of artists that, that I choose to support. So, I mean, this brings us to the next point I wanted to bring up with you is, um, the, the ways that we can individually support art, whether it's someone that's an illustrator. Um, I mean, she's much more than just that, but, a well-rounded artist like Chantel um, or, you know, people doing podcasts or whatever we are consuming. Like what were some of your takeaways on how we can individually support creatives and artists around us? Yeah. I think the first thing was that if, if there's something that you like and you see something to share it, like on Instagram, you can just tag someone and say, Hey, this is something that I appreciate take a look at it. Uh, the other way is uh, giving, if you're working with a, an artist, to give them the freedom to express themselves because that's that's their superpower. And they don't just know how to express themselves. They also know how to express you, like who you are, because they see the world through a different lens. So giving them the freedom to express is massive. And I mean, we saw this with Freestyle, the book, uh, having uh, the two designers that we had on, which I hope we can have on the podcast one day, uh, was such a big, a, a learning experience for me because seeing them work with the freedom that they had to create, it created something way beyond what I could even imagine. And that, that I think is another way of supporting uh, artists. And then, uh, yeah, paying them. Because, because you may not see... Uh, at first, the value of the dollar that you're putting into uh, the investment. But if you give it some time and you let it unfold and you start to connect the dots, you realize that without the art, the the vehicle is not fully there. Uh, The aesthetic required for people to be able to uh, process information in a certain way doesn't exist. And um, you'd you're not getting the full expression without the artistry involved. So it's kind of like being 50% engineer and 50% artist is something that I think we should all exercise to some degree. We should all have a creative heart uh, regardless of our field or regardless of what we do. And I think uh, Chantel brings that up uh, nicely in the way that she thinks about her craft. Yeah, she talks about it even in, you know, the way to support in a small way. Like, yeah. Go go to an artist's website and yeah, buy a sticker. A sticker, mm-hmm. like even if it's a fifty cent one dollar sticker, like you're you're voting with your dollar there, and you're also giving that artist momentum. Like that feels good to see someone support you, even if it's just a sticker, right? Right, and momentum's what's going to carry you forward. And um, yeah, so one of my big takeaways from this is just um, wanting to encourage people if, if you enjoy art and there's different artists that, that you consume their work um, either share it, give them a, a private message and just like tell them how much you love it or go on and, and you know support them with, with your dollar and if, if you're willing to consume something on a daily basis I, I think you should also be willing to follow, follow that up with action and um Chantel just it, it was a beautiful reminder 
for you know what we can do um, to kind of amplify the art world. That's it. I think that that word amplifying is beautiful. Uh, yeah. Anyway, so uh, that's that's it for today's episode. Uh, make sure to follow us on Instagram at the Freestyle Way. Uh, you can also support us. Remember, uh, with a little contribution, uh, monthly contribution, very easy to do. You just have to go to Anchor.fm/CarlPauli/support. We'll leave that link in the show notes or in the description here, and uh, you can uh, you can support the podcast so we can keep this thing alive because we want to do some big things with it. And uh, we want to, uh, yeah, send it, as they say, <laughs> right? And, and make, it, make it something special because we really think that some of these conversations and uh, some of the ideas that we're currently uh, toying around with can, can bring great value uh, for you guys. So anyways, thank you so much for listening. Uh, really appreciate you guys. And uh, we look forward to another episode next week. Peace.